Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show from Austin, Texas. I'm the Internet's Christopher Schmidt, and on today's show, we are joined with Erica Hall, co-founder of Mule Design and author of Just Enough Research. Her latest book, From a Book Apart, is Conversational Design, where she discusses how we can make digital systems feel less robotic and more real. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. The UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by me. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Thank you for telling others about Non-Breaking Space. You can follow me on Twitter at Telject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. And now, on with the show. Uh, thanks, Erica, for being on the show. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, your new book, uh, Conversational Design. Uh, it's out from a book apart. And uh, uh, can you just tell people uh, the, what you mean by conversational design? Are you talking about this, mm-hmm. the, the human interaction with a robot and, t- and with audio? Or is it more than that? Or Yeah, th- thanks for asking. It's about looking at human conversation, like the conversation uh, we're having right now. And, uh, you know, we've never had a live conversation before. We've, you know, it's only exchanged emails and things, but now we can talk to each other and it totally works, right? Because we speak the same language, but we don't have to set up, you know, specific protocols. Like you said, oh, can I call you Erica? But that, that was like a little extra. Um, but everything else is just like, we know how to have a conversation, um, and without establishing a lot of explicit agreements. And that's a really cool and humans have been doing that for you know a hundred thousand two hundred thousand years something like that well there's no written record of course so that's kind of a problem we know people are really good at talking and and the book conversational design is about using that as a model for human interaction with digital systems and the reason I think it's so important to talk about now is now we're at a point where computers can talk to us, uh, kind of, and and machine learning has advanced just because, uh, you know, the availability of storage in the cloud and processing power and all of these things have allowed us to have greater applications of machine learning, which don't necessarily mean it's super intelligent. Um, and text messaging took off. So, uh, and in, you know, in China, it's a primary way of interacting with services. And so there was kind of a, an immediate false analogy to like, oh, doing these, like interacting with systems using exactly these modes that people use is more conversational. And so in my book, I say, well, no, if it's actually harder to interact with the system by talking to it. And if you look at the deep principles of what makes a conversation between any two people who speak the same language work, um, then you can understand what qualities that interaction should have, which aren't necessarily talking or texting like a chatbot. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's one thing because like you know you, you talk about like we, we have the uh, you know the norms of talking and like we say hey what's what's going on whatever and I think uh, you know we talk about I guess. I guess the, the the most common example is that uh, we have the Amazon Alexa uh, mm-hmm. uh, device, the hockey puck, that's in uh, almost everyone's home, I guess, pretty much. And so, and so they kind of like uh, they made it simple, so you just say, "Hey, you know, Alexa," and th- then you can ask it for something. 
but then, you know, but it's always something simple, right? It's always something like, uh, you can't go very far with it or, mm-hmm. or very, like you, like I, I think I, I have it play music most of the time. It's like, it's mm-hmm. my, it's my very expensive DJ. So pretty much. Well, let me say, well, like, and also another thing is, is like, well, there's also Amazon Alexa, but also while I was reading your book, I, I, I uh, thought about the experience, a personal experience I was having, like, you know, I had a medical uh, situation and I have to talk to a bunch of medical uh, providers and technology providers and, you know, and medical, you know, and, and researching in the industry that they, that these people are part of, you know, it's very thin margins in which they're operating. Mm-hmm. And so they, I can tell that they've automated a lot of things because the main way they talk to me is by robocalls <laughs> and, and I have, I have to go through a phone tree when they mm-hmm. call me, he's like, Hey, would you like to do this and do this? And like, um, I don't think I've ever really talked to a person <laughs> from yeah. that, oh. like, like unless there's oh. a major problem or mm-hmm. anything like that. And so, so, but I was listening to, to, you know, so I was, I was like, well, I wonder if they've actually like thought about how annoying that is, <laughs> but then two, uh, you know, what kind of cost savings measures, measures they've made, but also the words that they used mm-hmm. to tell me and then tell me the options are, you know, cause you always hear like options may have changed. So you may really have to listen right. to how great <laughs> our words are that we chose for these options. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. And th- yeah, those systems are like some of the oldest, like, systems that tried to fake talking to a human those those phone tree systems and they're yeah and i'd say at least for for myself they're way worse than if i could just go online and pick a menu of options because it takes so much time and i think that's that's a really important thing to think if you're giving somebody different options of how to interact with your service people generally want the one especially in a a really goal-oriented situation like that um, people want the one that takes the least amount of time. And if a system has to read you all the options, like that is much slower than being able to scan down a menu. And so it's great, uh, you know, for some of these systems, I think can make uh, doing stuff online a lot more accessible uh, for, you know, people who are maybe visually impaired, like that part is good. Uh, but if you're comfortable reading a menu, reading a menu can be faster. And the idea is you should offer somebody the mode of interaction that is the easiest for them, like, and be really context aware, like, like you can be with people. Like if you, you know, if you're talking to a person about something, they might say like, Oh, do you want me to write that down for you? Do you want me to just tell you, um, can I draw you a picture? You know, a human can really respond really quickly and understand your context and say, Oh, I, I can work with you to figure out how to get you what you need really quickly. But a system is so rigid. And, and I think what happens is people is the organizations that create these systems think about it, not like from the human side, even though people are talking a lot about empathy and human centered design, they're still designing for the device, right? Cause you can't really do human centered mobile app design. You can't do like human centered website design. You have to do, you know, service design, I think gets the closest to this to saying, oh, there's a person and there's a service, a system, a company. And, and you have to kind of abstract that and say, what is the per- the individual person or the group of people, which again, we're terrible at designing for historically, but people are social and operating groups. Like what is the group of people need to get the value out of the system and then what is the the company the business or the organization need to get out of that group of people to to stay in business like what's the exchange and then think well what 
what method of interacting is best? Is it fastest and cheapest and most effective to have somebody talk on the phone? Is it fastest to have them go to an app or a website or talk to a speaker? And I think Amazon is the closest to this because they're, they're like, I mean, they're in my local grocery store now. Uh, and still you look at Alexa and it's exactly what you say. Like you have the echo and you can play music. It's, I've got one in the kitchen. And so it's great for kitchen timers, most expensive kitchen timer in the world. Uh, but the whole shopping aspect is, is impossible. Like very few people shop unless they already have a shopping list set up and they know like how much they're getting of each object and they're just reordering because you don't know, like you could ask Amazon to ship you something and it could be a virtually any description, right? If, even if you ask for it, I'd like some paper towels, you could get a pallet of the wrong kind of paper towels instead of, you know, three rolls that you really want. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, people, one of the great things about Amazon was that it actually provided pictures of the items that you wanted to buy. And so, yeah. and so they, I think they did research, like the more photos you have, uh, the better, because people, you know, when they buy a car, they want to kick the tires and you, you know, you don't, I don't know if people actually buy cars online, but I, I assume they do by the number of websites and commercials I see, but uh, they, uh, you know, they need to see as much information as possible to make the mm-hmm. decision. And so I've actually bought one thing from Amazon. It was to buy another Amazon uh, Echo device because they were just, it was so easy to do. So they like, like told me like, they actually told me like, Hey, do you want this? Say these words and then we'll order it for you. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like other than yeah. that, other than that, like I knew I was getting that one device and I knew I could afford uh-huh. it. And I, at the time, and I was like, okay, Otherwise, like no, that's not good. Yeah, work. so it's it's interesting, and it's it's interesting to me how like uh, the Echo never prompts you; it never offers things to you, like even the way a website can. And and the other thing to keep in mind is how much people love websites, because you know so many companies are rushing to like conversational UI, which I, I would distinguish from conversational design, which is like that. Oh, I'm going to talk to this interface like a person. They're rushing to that without thinking, you know how much people like the web because it means you don't have to talk to another person? Like, conversation is great when you feel like having a conversation, when there are benefits to having the conversation. Um, like, this is a lot more fun for us to have this conversation than to like go back and forth over email. That'd be terrible. But if you just want to get something done, a lot of times like, oh, I want to search through, I'm trying to find shoes to match an outfit I'm wearing to a friend's wedding, like that happens a lot. And you don't want to like necessarily go in a shoe store, you could like say go to Zappos and instantly browse through like 10,000 pairs of shoes in like 20 seconds and, and filter them really fast and never have to talk to anybody or explain or defend your choices. And that feels, you know, that's amazing for really the functional tasks like that, you don't want to talk to a person. You especially don't want to have to negotiate with a robot personality. You want your information. Um, but there are other times when um, when having a having a more conversational interaction can be helpful. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's more human. You have to think about the humans designing it for other humans, and then even just making a really efficient, delightful web page, like Google is an example I use in my book, is a, a really great conversational interaction because it's turn-based, right? You go to Google, you type in a couple words, it reflects something back to you, and you can very quickly alter that input or take the next step. 
And Google is very error tolerant, which is a, a really important part of being conversational that totally gets lost in these voice systems and these chatbots, where if you say something um, that they're not expecting or you give them data that they're not trained to receive and respond to, it's a disaster and it just wastes your time and you're left feeling dumb and guessing all the answers. But you work with Google and you can type because it's it's got it's trained itself on like trillions and trillions of queries, it can now pattern match really well and make good guesses. If you misspell a word, it can show you results for that. And it could be very helpful at um, a, you know making a good guess about intent just because it's seen so many intents and it's responded to them. And it, it's so fast. And the goals are really well aligned. Like you want to get to information that matches your intent and Google makes money by matching that. And so... So that's really like a conversation because it's turn-based, it's error tolerant, and it's really well aligned on goals. Uh, so I, I was researching, uh, and you also, I think you mentioned the fact that uh, Google is uh, responds so quickly, though. Like sometimes people don't know they've made an error, and that. Yeah. Uh, and so, so in, is, is that like error? Like the fact that error, like that Google's like said, "Oh, you misspelled the word," uh, but I think you mean this word. Mm-hmm. And that, and so they actually like, that's like a kind of error tolerance is what, is what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's the same way in talking to another person, like I could misspeak or use a partial sentence or even barely say anything at all. And, uh, and you could understand me and respond to me knowing what I meant. So the whole idea of like, I know what you mean. You don't have to be like machine precise, explicit in your meaning and I can get it and keep the conversation going. Like that's a really important part of conversation that is not captured in most of these systems that consider themselves conversational. Like with Alexa, to keep using that example because it's delightful and obvious, um, there's no follow-up, there's no going back. Like you can talk to a person in the kitchen and ask them a question, like if you're actually with a human cooking, you ask them a question um, and then you could ask them a follow-up question, you know? You could ask, like, do we have any garlic? And they'd say, oh, yeah, we've got some. What kind do you need? And then you could ask the follow-up, like, oh, do you have the minced garlic? And totally would totally follow. Or give me this stuff in the jar. You wouldn't even have to explicitly refer to it. But with Alexa, Alexa just does not remember the last thing you said. So you can't go back and be like, oh, the last thing I told you, uh, do this with it. Or I want to ask a follow-up question to that. And um, I'm sure they're working on that, but that's really hard. Like machine learning stuff is really, really hard and often the hardest way to solve a problem. But if you think of yourself in very system and device dependent way, not from the human perspective, you'll be like, oh, we have to solve this really hard engineering problem as opposed to being up above it and saying, okay, what are we really trying to solve? And what's the easiest way for us as a company to design something that meets that need? But that might not be very exciting. For example, like websites, extremely not exciting to people now. Menus and buttons, extremely not exciting to people. But it's like solve the problem and then figure out how the technology can help you do a better job of solving the problem by being a a more intelligent system that can make better predictions based on past data. I feel feel sad when you say like people aren't excited by websites anymore. That just makes me feel bad. But uh... (laughs) (laughs) well. Like, uh, yeah, like, why, why does that make you feel bad? Do you like websites? Oh, I just love websites. I've been uh, since 93 on the web, uh-huh. designing web. So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, but I do like the fact that, you know, talking about des- 
solving problems and and having that. And so I was going through the book, and I just want to say, like, um, like I thought, you know, like like I said, I thought, oh, I, was, I thought it was conversational UIs, and then I read the book. I was like, no, this is a. Uh, I felt like a content strategy book to me as mm-hmm. I was going through it, and it's like like it was really reinforcing how like words are important mm-hmm. and uh, making sure, and then how we get words, you know, to be important and and fixing it and and trying to build uh, the right vocabulary for our users and to solve the problems that they want to solve that are also like beneficial to us. Like, like the, I love the example of Google, like, which is like Google really wants to get you to where you want to go because they want to sell ads against what you're, mm-hmm. what you're looking for. And so that's a really good thing. So, um, and also I was like going through the book. I felt like also, uh, uh, I kept on thinking about, uh, MailChimp's, uh, uh or Aaron Walters, uh, they wrote about the, uh, design personas, mm-hmm. you know, design personas work well in tandem with, uh, being conversational designs. Um, uh, you mean like the the persona of the system or the persona of the user? Uh, of the the perso- personas of the brand, I think, is also yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So like, so yeah, so Mailchimp has a has a, a very certain way. At least they do. Not like they, they, I think they still do. But uh, in terms of how mm-hmm. they communicate with the customer and yeah. make them feel loved when they make mistakes, and uh, and so they're they're very intentional about about that. And also in mm-hmm. the same way, like Slack, you know, is is uh, how they communicate with you. And I think also, uh, you know, like you mentioned. Uh, and uh, Flickr as well, like like when yeah. uh, for inside, they would have like very a nice personality about that, and so uh, and so it's like um, so you're just infusing personality with that, and so mm-hmm. uh, wh- which I think is a great way to go. I think people people love it. Um, um, I was just like I, I don't know really how you go about instilling that into an office, and so I'm going to ask you a question, which is not a very mm-hmm. fair question. So, but uh, <laughs> but. <yeah. laughs> But it's a question that always pops up, because uh, yeah. we did a co- we did a conference and uh, we did conferences and we did and we talked to like different, uh, I guess uh, disciplines within web development and design. And so it didn't really matter which industry or or just a, a discipline it was. But we always got this question. It was like, how do I convince my boss mm-hmm. <laughs> to instill or put this process into place? And so that's mm-hmm. my unfair question to you. So. Oh, no, actually, that's a totally fair question because, you know, unlike a lot of people, um, I'm I'm still in the consulting business. And so that's basically what I do is go around and convince people's bosses of things. And so that that's a lot more core to my job. And I'd say the, the way to do it is to really start by being clear about the goal, because I think that's where these things all go off the rails. Right. Like, w- like with having a personality, not pers- having a personality. Um you know, designing for particular devices and not others, taking a certain interaction approach, you all have to start with a really, really clear goal. And I'd say that's the place you start. You start whenever you want to convince somebody of something, and this is really across the board, you start by asking them questions. Like this this starts from like Dale Carnegie, right? Every interaction designer should get a copy of how to make friends and influence people. Because that's where you have to start is like, oh, I'm trying to convince somebody to do something and that's true of an interface an interface is trying to convince you to do something something and that's true when you're working with your colleagues or your boss and trying to convince them to do something the first way is to listen to them and to understand what they want what their goals are and then fit what you're trying to do into their goal so you should start and say really what's our goal here and be really clear about that and it's shocking like i go into a lot of organizations now 
And, and I say, okay, you can't collaborate, you can't do research, you can't do design until you have a clear shared goal. And even that can be this huge conversation because it's like, well, what is our goal? I've talked to research departments where they were just given um, studies to do without a goal. It's like, well, why am I getting this information? It's like, oh, it's just a study we thought of for you to do. And so you have to start there. And once you have your goal, and, and MailChimp's a great example because MailChimp understood their audience. Like MailChimp understood that when they started their business, email newsletters and um, email marketing and direct mail marketing was like the most hated segment of everything. Like um, in advertising and marketing, um, that was that was the lowest tier, right? It was like, oh, you wanted to do splashy display ads or commercials or something quote unquote creative. And that's where they were going in. And they were saying, this is really powerful if you do it right. And now we see that's totally true. Like email marketing is still incredibly powerful relative to all of the display crap and other stuff we see. It's so powerful. But they knew that they had to come in and and they couldn't just be corporate because that's how people already thought of it as like soulless corporate garbage spam. And they had they came in and they're like, hey, we're friendly and approachable and warm and human and delightful. And that was, you know, delight is sort of a, a can be a controversial term in design now. But that was one place where they actually had to make it delightful because the current the the market they were working in had all these attributes of being a soulless grind of things that nobody wanted and they also knew that because their their customer was talking to um uh their customers customers so they had to model that right they had to say you have to have like if you're going to be in somebody's inbox you have to give them something they want to receive so they had to talk to their customers like they wanted their customers to talk to um the people they were email marketing uh, and and because so, a lot of their work was around best like best practices like don't spam people don't make them sad like with getting all this garbage like add something to their life and I think that's a case where having that personality to that business was very important so if you start with your goal and you start with your context then you can say okay how much about having a quote unquote personality is important and what, and that personality should come from your role in that person's life, right? Because sometimes people confuse having a conversational tone with having a, a particular uh, set of characteristics, but you can be conversational and have that mode of communicating that's very human and very immediate. And you can be very serious, right? Because if you have a conversation with your lawyer, that's going to be different from having a conversation with the person who's delivering your pizza. I hope you can have a conversation with your banker. You can have a conversation with a funeral director. And those are going to be conversational. But I would hope that they have a different tone. And that's exactly the same when you're thinking about a system. You're like, How, what do I want people to feel about interacting with a system? And you look at like Amazon, for example, and Amazon is very neutral, like they have a good use of language and they're pretty conversational, but they're very neutral because they're talking to everybody about purchasing potentially anything from a piece of medical equipment to a book, to a riding lawnmower, to a pair of shoes, uh, you know, to a, 
phone case with their face on it. Like, so Amazon has to understand that they're in the role of like running a giant department store and they can't be super particular in their tone. And it's the same thing. It's just all about the context and, and how much you want to interact with people and how big of a role certain emotions play in the interaction. And that's really going to guide uh, your approach and whether you have a personality or a character or a mascot. Because the way we're going right now is like every system that uses machine learning is going to have a face and a personality and, you, and a name. And you can't remember that. Like the thing I'm talking about now, like Bank of America is launching Erica, their, their banking assistant. I don't want that. You know, everybody just wants to talk to like, what's the bank? I'll talk to the bank. That's a normal interaction. Oh, there's, there's one thing um, you, you said uh, just a second ago. I'm not sure how, how much about it, but you said like delightful as a design term is kind of controversial now. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. And this is something I was just talking, uh, I was talking to people on Twitter about it because designers really like to use that term. It's one of these like things crop up in the industry and the you know, words pop-up that, that come into currency for trying to figure out how to articulate the value that design provides. And and delight is a word that, that a lot of people use. And I'm not saying like don't delight people, but I'm saying that sometimes that's not there's a layer. <clears throat> oh, what's a, what's a good way to put this? Like when you talk about delighting somebody, that implies that the person you're delighting is aware of your existence to a certain extent to have an emotional reaction and to have a specific type of emotional reaction. And sometimes the most delightful thing is to get through the transaction very quickly. And I think that can be unsatisfying to a designer who's in this mindset of how do I delight this person? And it's like, maybe you delight them by running in the background and they never know you exist. Right. And so, but if you're like, wait a second, I I need to add something to this person's experience like people forget designers forget that like if you look around somebody's context and this is why it's really good to see people in their environments you'll see that they're interacting with like possibly three different devices they're surrounded by their material environment and it's like why is the one thing you're designing gonna like be the thing that they're really paying enough attention to to be delighted and so the reason i think that term is fraught is because it's not taking into account the whole context. And it's sort of saying what I'm designing needs to assert itself in a particular way. And if that's not the case, if you're not designing something that really should have that sort of focus and that emotion to it, then maybe you just need to be super invisible. And I think that's, that can be unsatisfying for designers to be like, okay, they're currently being delighted by, you know, whatever's going on around them and what you're doing should be, invisible okay yeah i def- definitely see like that, that could be like a catch-all like people use it as a, as a term for like yeah we need to be delightful when you like you you know yeah. there's a context for for when that's yeah. appropriate exactly and like what what do you actually what do you actually mean by that and and a lot of times it is it's a self it can be a self-serving term and you just that's what i would caution is make sure that when you say oh our role as designers is to make an interaction more delightful that you're really thinking like that's what the user wants. That's not what you want to provide, right? Don't be the person who's like tapping somebody on the shoulder, like pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Um, you really have to think 
about the full context. And that's, I mean, that again, going back to being conversational, that's a hugely important part of a system that's conversational or not is a system that demonstrates context awareness. Um, cause, cause being in a conversation implies a sense of a shared context, um, and, and a sort of live feedback loop. And you don't even necessarily need a lot of sensors or, you know, a lot of machine learning to do that. Like, like even a, the most basic website can demonstrate context awareness by understanding like the time of day, the geography, the person's um, previous interactions with the system. Like there's so much that you can draw from the context um, to make something more valuable. And that's not to say personalizing, because I think personalizing things gets really overvalued in interaction design and system design. It's like being content, being aware of somebody's context is so much more important than trying to target things specifically to people because you really run the risk of making uh, overbroad assumptions about what they need at that time and not paying enough attention to the current context. Right. Yeah. I think um, I, I forgot the name of the book, but Eric Meyer has a book about like yeah about, about that in terms of making sure that you have the right context and and uh, yeah, that's so true. Like because yeah. you know. Um, I think it's also like I, I guess I kind of refer to it as metadata. Like you know, if you when mm -hmm. you mention like like hey, I've come to the website at, in the middle of the night. I'm not really looking forward, you know, to my bank to be delightful. You know, I'm just like I really <laughs> want to get this done and get it out there. You know, maybe the yeah. bank's not great, great job, but that great, great thing. But like sometimes I just you know, if I'm coming in the middle of the night and I'm not usually there, you know, they can check the history of my log and my login or whatever. Like maybe they don't really care to know about my auto loan, you know, rate at this, at this time. Of, of yeah. They just want to check their balance and move on with their life. So, but yeah, so, um, and then that, that's, and that's something that I, I liked about uh, when mobile design came, which like we actually thought about, you know, if someone's on their, on their phone, there's things that they want in their context of their phone, rather than if they're like on the couch with their desktop or their like, you know, widescreen tablet or something like that. So, but yeah. 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 It's always, you just always have to really center the human in your design and uh and this is just like more of more of that and sometimes it takes like overcoming uh it always takes overcoming the ego to really think what does the person really need but if you're really clear on your goal right and that's how that helps if you're clear on the goal then you're not saying oh i'm designing something that's personally satisfying to me i'm designing something that meets this business goal by really meeting a human need out in the world. And so that's, if you think about it like that, then it makes it a lot easier to work together as a team and make these really complicated decisions about how you're designing the system. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I liked about design, like when I started into design and more, because I felt like it's more of a, um, uh, you know, calling in, in a way. It's like, I want to serve mm -hmm. and I want to find out the best ways you know, with the tools I have with visual words, uh, you know, the context and, and doing that. So, but, um, but yeah, but so, so that's why I feel like, so like, and, and, and there's definitely egos involved sometimes like, Hey, we need to like, we rush into that and we have problems with that. So, but, um, but yeah, so, but, uh, you say you consult and so you were, how do you, uh, work with teams who, I guess I create or discuss design systems in, into their, you know, products and services. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, right now we're really uh, kind of shifting. We've done a lot, you know, with Mule, a lot of uh, hands-on design, like actually doing the design work ourselves. 
and now we're moving because we've been doing it so long to working with internal teams to help them because so many organizations have grown like these huge internal teams and, um, and but they still need this external perspective. And so we do that in a couple of ways. Like sometimes we go in and, and we have like workshops work really well as long as they're designed in a certain way to support really changing habits over time. And so a lot of it is going in and working with teams to kind of shift their perspective because it's so easy to get uh, so down in the weeds, even with a really a group of really, really smart people in a really successful organization, you just get in this mode of like delivery, delivery, delivery. And then people from the outside can come in and be like, okay, let's, let's go up a level. Let's go to a higher level and look at why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it and, um, and give them a different kind of conceptual framework for looking at it, whether it's being more evidence-based, because that's a lot of what we do is talk about um, evidence-based design. Uh, you know, what a lot of people talk about is research, but I've stopped liking splitting it out like that or going in and saying like, okay, let's, you know, you know, we do a workshop on conversational design now that's like, okay, let's really look at how you're designing things and are you starting from the meaning or are you starting from an artifact, right? And kind of shifting how people think about the work from, oh, I'm gonna start sketching and then fill in the empty boxes with meaning later. And that's even still the typical content strategy process, but saying, wow, you know, you can, uh, start from just modeling interactions just by talking to people on your team. And that's where you should start and then kind of transcribe and, and uh, revise that, you know, so we have ways of going in and working with teams to kind of shift their perspective and give them a different set of, of tools for the process or a different way to continually ask questions so that they kind of have that, um, that, not as like, like some sort of an external perspective by taking a higher perspective um, and don't just get um, reactive because that's the problem. You get really reactive to internal pressure. And that's something that um, that like people from the outside from agencies uh, can offer is going in there and saying, we're not going to react. We're going to stop and really be more strategic and more intentional because that's the whole point of design is applying an intentional process to solve a problem. But people in-house can get really, uh, really, really reactive to like, oh, like this executive wants this, or, oh, we got this customer feedback in and we're just gonna react to the customer feedback without really thinking about what it means in terms of our overall business, et cetera. Yeah, kind of researching uh, this and like and you consult with companies. And so uh, one of the things you mentioned is like the, that the teams they come in there, even like consult with them and say, "Hey, we." Uh, I like the fact that you can come in there and say, like, "Hey, we need to stop and focus and be more mm-hmm. evidence research about that." Which I, I totally love that that concept uh, instead of just doing research. To I feel like some, sometimes people will use research to uh, for their confirmation biases. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. That's why people still run focus groups. Like you know, John Meta released his uh, uh, his report at. Um, you know, as he does at South by Southwest this year. And he talked about how few organizations uh, he looked at use qualitative research. And when they do, the vast majority of it is focus groups. And that's pure confirmation bias. Uh, you know, like you hear people say things, you pick out some choice quotes. Like I have a friend who does market research and she said so much of the things she gets hired to do are really doing exactly that. Like the CEO needs to make a, a, an annual uh, statement. He wants some choice quotes from customers. It's not about really learning because research is 
painful because you really, you want to go into it with the mindset of, I want to be proven wrong as quickly as possible. And, and that can be a huge mindset shift. And also like the thing that, that we talk about in our, like, especially in our workshops is the research process has to be integrated with the design process and it has to be collaborative because so many organizations that even have a commitment to research have a whole group of, like they might have a whole team of PhDs that they keep in a separate building. So, so that all those people are learning things, but then the people making product decisions are in another building and every once in a while they get a report that they can then ignore because that's how it works. And so the tough part about introducing data and evidence and research into your design process isn't doing the activities. Like you've got to be a certain amount of rigorous, blah, blah, blah. But it's about making sure that you're asking the right questions and you're taking an honest approach that, oh, we want to learn. We don't just want to be proven right. And that's the hugest mind shift to always to thinking, I always need to be asking questions. It's not like a thing we do at the beginning of the project. It's a thing that we do continuously, the same way that we continuously iteratively design or continuously iteratively code. We continuously iteratively learn and, and we learn together so that everybody solving the problem has the same information. And shockingly, this is still a different approach that we can go in. I mean, it's, I, I'm happy to the extent that it's like, oh, I will never run out of work working with people on this. But at the same time, it would be great if people internally could stop. And I tell people literally to stop work. If you find yourself working and you don't know what the goal is, or you don't feel like your team is working towards the same goal, do not do any more work. Like make that a really hard line because otherwise you're just doing stuff. And you can see like that so many things out in the world are the product of people who like just kept making stuff or who didn't have a clear idea about how to make good decisions. Cause that's a huge other part of our work is, is, clarifying the decision-making process because plenty of stuff started off as good design, but then went through this terrible, um, poorly designed decision-making process with a lot of bad input from the various stakeholders. And then what came out the other end was no longer good design. And um, I'm not saying that's the fault of the people making the choices. I'm saying that that is a shared, uh, flawed process that needs to be improved uh, through having a better way to give feedback and clarify the goals and, and all those things. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about uh, how like you have the researchers in one building or one silo, and and the designers in another site, uh, another department. And they don't you know talk, and so, um, and uh, I, I guess it's it, it, it kind of reminds me of you know I hate to go back to like my, my history, but like of uh, design conferences, uh, conferences that we used to run. And they'd be at one point we did a two day conference, one track, and literally, and they were like, they were extended sessions, or they're kind of like mini, like extended, more like probably hour and a half type of sessions. So, but people would be one track, and people would be in the same room for two days, and we send out surveys, and it's like what you know what you didn't like and what you didn't like, and people said like, uh, I just wish I had time to get to know the person, you know, mm -hmm. in the in the conference. I was like, you literally sat next to people in the same room and ate with them for like, not in the same room, but we took them on some, I was, yeah. like, I was like, you, you could have talked at any point <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and talked to them. Like we weren't holding you back, you know, from talking to other people. So, mm -hmm. uh, but it's amazing. Like, so at that point we actually like became, uh, instigators and in conversations, like 
we'd have to find ways to like get people to talk to each other. Yeah. Even though like they've, they took the time and effort to fly or travel mm-hmm. to get to the same room. And they're like, why am I, why am I going to talk to this person? And so, um, and so is, is that, you know, a big part of the, the benefit of have, having you come in and as a consultant to companies? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. That's so, um, yeah, it's so funny. That's so common. Like exactly what you described is like the thing that we say is people could work next to one another for a decade and never truly collaborate because they never have that conversation, that like higher order conversation to say, oh, what are we doing here and how can we best work together? People come in to these pre-existing contexts, these pre-existing cultures. It's the same thing like a conference or an organization. And we even had this at Mule where we, because we've always been a pretty small organization where we've hired people in and they, they look around, they're like, how are things done here? And we're like, no, you come in and you add to it. Like, that's why you're here is so that you can change how we do things. But I feel like people go into a conference environment or they go into an organization they work for, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm working here now. And they just, there's so much fear. Right. This is what we've seen like in all of our work over the years going into every kind of organization is there's so much fear of speaking up because people aren't rewarded for asking questions. People are rewarded for appearing to have the right answer. Right. And this is why research is so hard for people, not because the doing interviews or, or comparative research or something is really hard. It's because you have to have the confidence to ask questions. And so I think that's an important thing that companies need to do is give people permission to have honest conversations in the same way that like people felt, I guess they didn't have permission even from the conference or from the people they were with to kind of break, they, they, they get really passive and that just happens. People come into these environments, even people who are otherwise like really smart, outgoing people go in this environment and be like, Oh, now I'm a participant in somebody else's deal, whether it's their conference or their company. And we can come in and we're like, hi, we aren't part of your deal. We have no fear. We're going to help you get to this place where you have less fear about raising your hand and going like, okay, before we go any further, let's get really clear about what we're trying to do. And do we have the information we need? A lot of people just don't feel empowered to, to stop and ask those questions. And that's when a lot of people will just tacitly go together and and do something that's not meeting the goals or that's not going to be successful because they don't just continuously have conversations with each other. And this is something that like Jeff Gothelf in like his lean UX would really talk like that was like the best part of, I think that practice to take away isn't necessarily that everybody can be super lean, but that having conversations is part of the work and it's a critical part of the work, but so many organizations have compartmentalized that into meetings. Like you talk to each other during meetings and then meetings are this huge area of dysfunction, but that's when we talk to each other, right? As opposed to, oh, everybody should be constantly interrogating the process in a really lightweight way that doesn't derail it to say like, okay, are, are we, do we all know what we're doing? Do we all know why we're doing it? Do we all know when we're going to be successful? Does anybody have any objections? And have that be sort of a continuous part of the work that you're always talking about this stuff and you're always, you always feel like if you see something going wrong that people welcome you saying that as opposed to, whoa, we're all happy in our confirmation bias. Don't mess it up. 
don't point out wrong things. I feel like sometimes there's a culture, especially if it's a really hierarchical culture where it's like, Oh God, don't, you know, the director said something that was really wrong. Don't point it out. And everybody's just has this agreement to like, you know, tacit agreement to not point out when the people in charge are doing stupid things, you know? So yeah. Yeah. That's I think, a problem. Yeah. I think that the, you know, to the culture is like the big, big, big issue because, uh, um, uh, I think you mentioned uh, in another another area like uh, Project Aristotle. I believe it's what it was from uh, from Google about uh, that people feel safe uh, to uh, discuss things and uh, and mm-hmm. actually like uh, you know be okay and to say that they don't know. I guess I guess they say like yeah. they don't know to be okay to say they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, so. and I think that's the best um, the best test for a team or a a company culture is if you're sitting there with your team, how okay would you feel saying, Hey, I don't know about the thing you're talking about, or I don't know this, or I don't think we know something. Do you feel like you always have to keep up a front of, of knowing everything? Or do you feel totally comfortable saying, Hey, I don't know what we're talking about here. Could somebody fill me in? And you wouldn't feel like you'd lose status, uh, in your, on your team. Yeah. And that's what Google did with this project Aristotle, which is really, really worth reading about. They did like a two year study to see what makes good teams good because they were looking for a formula. And what they found is that the teams could have different numbers of people. They could all socialize. They could not socialize. They could be more hierarchical. They could be flatter, but the thing, and so there was no way to just assemble a lot of teams according to these certain metrics. It was, do people have psychological safety, which is like, can they be their true selves? Can they go to people and say, Hey, team members, I'm having like, I'm going through some personal stuff and I'm just like, not going to have a really great productive day. I'm going to do the best I can and have their team support them as a human being or to say, I don't know, or just to like, you know, admit to their vulnerabilities and have their team really have their back. And those are the most productive teams. But organizations still pit people against each other and and still reward individuals over teams. And people do have really low levels of psychological safety. And that the important message there from what we've seen is there's a huge business cost. If people can't support each other and be honest with each other, then half of everybody's brain that works for a company is going to be solving politics. And at the most, you might get a third of people's brains working on their actual work. And most of their brain is like status anxiety. And what do I say to this person? What do I say to that person? And how do I get somebody to make a decision I need them to make when I can't be totally honest with them? Because I would have to talk about how somebody higher up the chain had made bad decisions and that's a career limiting move, right? If organizations create the conditions for people to really collaborate and be honest and have safety with one another and trust one another and be rewarded as teams, that takes away all this overhead of just of crap and thinking about the politics, which really is like a lot of companies are paying people like half their salaries to just negotiate the toxic environment. Wow. Yeah. So don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and yeah, that's just kind of amazing. Yeah, so I can definitely, definitely see that where people have to navigate the politics. Yeah, to get to the so that's that's often the biggest service that we provide is the fact that we're we don't have that. We can just come in and we we'll get to say stuff that we know people inside the organization have been saying, 
but they listen to us because it's like, hi, we're mule. We're from the outside. Um, you should do this. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like sometimes we'll just stand next to people. We'll be like, okay, who isn't being listened to hire us? We'll come in and we'll just be like these people who are standing next to us. They are like us. Listen to them. You know, almost that where it's like, Hey, these are the people who are going to do this thing. And everybody's like, Oh, mule said we should listen to you. And it's stupid and ridiculous that organizations need that. But if it helps, you know, if it helps to have us come in and say the things that uh, people inside the organization would get fired for saying, like that's a service we provide. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. And then, um, but I think it also goes to, you know, making sure you know the teammates that you work with too. And actually like uh, being that, I guess, like, I was a conference, uh, conversational uh, instigator mm-hmm. and, and taking the time to get your, your, your coworkers. Um, Cause like, you know, to go back to the early questions, it's like, how do I convince my boss or you mm-hmm. know, X, Y, Z is it's like, it's like, well, it's one day at a time, you know, just, you can't just, yeah. you just can't uh, say, Hey, here's all this evidence, you know, that I've, you know, that I'm right. right Cause uh, that will take them off even more. <laughs> yeah. You'll just get shut down. You'll get shut down. And in fact, like one of the exercises I do when I, I do the, like one of the, the workshops I do the most often is about this collaborative research and evidence gathering and is to have people interview each other, just like talk to each other about their lives. And this is like the most amazing part of the workshop because a lot of times there'll be people even on the same team or on different parts of the product organization or just different parts of the organization as a whole. And I'll be like, just ask each other about your day to day. And just by doing that, just by taking like five or 10 minutes, literally to just say to somebody like, Oh, tell me about your work. Tell me about what you do. All of a sudden, not only do they know so much more about that person. So it's like, Oh, I know that this is your priority here. Let me explain how my recommendation helps you with your priority. Like, it's not just that it's also like, wow, I really, I like this person. <laughs> like, cause you just get to know them and people will literally either meet each other for the first time in this workshop or overcome all these assumptions they had about their role. It's like, Oh, I know that like, I'm an engineer and you're a designer and I always had certain assumptions about your job, but I never thought to ask. Nobody ever thinks to just ask somebody about their job. It seems too obvious, but even just taking like sitting down like with your colleagues and having coffee and just being like, Hey, just talk to me about your day to day. And I'm not going to interrupt you with my stuff. I just want to learn about your stuff. If you can do that in a casual way, like your working relationship will be like 10 times better. And all of a sudden you'll just be able to take so much less time to kind of establish your protocol to talk to them. So like that part of being conversational in the work is really important, you know, to just talk to each other about what's going on, like as individuals so that you're not making assumptions because everybody makes assumptions about their colleagues, especially if you feel stressed, you're like, Oh, this person's not giving me what I need. They don't know what you need, you know, because they're they're all up in their own heads with their own jobs, right? And I think we're we're kind of talking about about and uh, just want to kind of you know put things in the bow if I can, but uh, yeah, is uh like how, how would you know? Like you know, we talk about problems that you know, companies have with culture and communicating, and, and the idea to you know ultimate goal is to help the uh, serve our, the customers and. Um, and then there, it, in the byway of serving the, the company, uh, how do you know when? What are some signs when you know like you're 
your company or your culture or your organization is successfully communicating or clicking just, mm. just in general. Yeah. I'd say if, um, if people can are free to ask questions and there's no penalty, if people are rewarded for asking questions, if people are rewarded for saying when they don't know something, um, if, uh, yeah, it's like having a sense that, that you can be really honest with one another about the work. If you can criticize the work uh, and accept criticism and not have it be really personal, if you know how to have functional disagreements, um, you know, Dan Brown wrote a really great book, Designing Together, about collaboration. And one of the biggest mistake, uh, mistakes people make about collaboration is thinking that you're collaborative if everybody agrees. And that's not true. You're collaborative if people can have really passionate arguments about the work and have a strong point of view, but not take it personally. And, uh, and so I'd say those are some of the big signs. And also, like, if people are just generally laughing and joking with each other and you get a sense, like, we can walk into uh, a client's office and immediately get a sense for, like, oh, this is a functional collaborative team or this isn't just by how easy they are with each other. Are they joking? Do you, do you get the sense that everybody's supporting each other and, um, and that people aren't waiting? Like we've also walked into organizations where it felt like people were just waiting for somebody to, to appear vulnerable so they could go in like showgirls, you know, and just like throw beads under their feet and trip them. And, um, and so to a certain extent it is, it is a really qualitative thing. Like you just go in and you develop a sense for it. But there are these tests about like, like, do people generally joke in a good-natured way? You know, are people, like, kind and considerate of each other? Do people feel like there's, like, a need to, to really front and be like, no, I'm going to be working till 10 at night, and I'm going to work harder, and if you're not here as many hours as, as I am, then clearly you're shirking. Like, you know, there's a, there's a real tenor to the discussion um, that happens, but I think... I think it's good that people are having more discussions now about uh, what makes culture functional and breaking down the sort of like horrible hard skills, soft skills dichotomy to, to come to something new, to realize like, oh, we're designing software for humans to use and for these interactive systems. And we have to interact functionally as people designing and developing those systems because the, what we design is going to be a total reflection and manifestation of how we interact with each other. So the book is called uh, Conversational Design from the Book Apart. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, how can people find you online and, and uh, hire, hire you and save their, yeah. their company culture and we, communicate we'll better? Save culture. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a mule girl on Twitter. That's really the best. That's the place I am still to this day, uh, probably to the detriment of uh, my peace of mind sometimes. But I enjoy it. I, I talk to good people there. And uh, and then muledesign.com is our site. And then we're also, we publish a lot of stuff on Medium as well. Uh, so, yeah, those are those are the places. Cool. And it's Mule Design on Twitter, too. We're also on LinkedIn. A lot of people, it's funny, a lot of people seem to have moved towards LinkedIn because that's like the, the least toxic social network where you can just go and talk about work stuff. So I have all these colleagues and, and friends who've moved from Facebook and Twitter and they're like, I just hang out on LinkedIn now because it's safe. So we're there too. Thank you so much. And, um, yeah. And I'll uh, talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you.